up a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. The Restory Show Season 3, Episode 6. Today's podcast is brought to you again by BooklaunchMentor.com. And if you have ever dreamed of writing down your story or that staggering work of genius and you want to publish it, you are going to find all the help and mentoring you will need to fulfill that book launching dream at BooklaunchMentor.com. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to highlight the iTunes review of the week. And today's is by Paul. Paul writes, Whether it's through her personal story or the stories she gathers, Mary consistently draws people to the transformational power of the gospel and what it means to be made new in Jesus Christ, thoughtful, inspiring, encouraging. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate you taking the time to write that review. And if you have a little chance to click on a little mouse and uh, and work on your keyboard and write a couple sentences for the Restory Show, I'd really appreciate it. Or just share it with a friend. That's one of the best ways that we're going to get the word out about the story, because I just have a passion to see these stories transform lives. So if you could do that for me this week, that would be lovely. Um, if you want to be featured on the Restory Show for a little two-minute clip of your story, you can go to marydemuth.com and show, share your own two-minute story by clicking on the little icon that looks like a microphone. Today, I am welcoming Anna LeBaron, and she has a fantastic story. In fact, this podcast coincides with her book release called The Polygamist's Daughter. And so I am really, uh, just by that intriguing title, I'm sure that uh, you are now ready and waiting for Anna's great story. So here it is. I am so excited about having my guest today on. Her name is Anna LeBaron, and she is a friend of mine. And um, I was just talking to a group of writers this last week in my mentoring intensive, and some of them are podcast listeners. And one of them said to me, Mary, you have a lot of friends because you always introduce them as, this is my friend, Anna. So, but she actually is my friend. And uh, I have lots of, you know, awesome friends that I just kind of get on the show. So if you want to be on the show, you have to become my friend. So Anna, <laughs> thanks for being my friend and for being on the Restory Show today. Well, I highly recommend your friendship to anyone who's willing to engage with you in that way. <laughs> That's it's awesome. Great friend to have. That's a good endorsement. I'll, I'll keep that. So, Anna, you have this crazy story, and you've written a book about it. It's coming out soon. Um, actually, by the time this airs, it will have been released. Why don't you tell us the name of that book, and then we'll get into your story. The book is called The Polygamist's Daughter. And it's my memoir, growing up and being raised in a polygamist cult, and how I was able to eventually escape, and what I've done with my life since then. Yes, and I've had a privilege of reading it in the early stages, and also in the late stages, and endorsing it. And it's just a very, what I love about it, among many things, is it's a very fast-paced read. It reads like a novel, like you want to turn the page. And so I just really appreciate that. But the story is so crazy. So why don't you start off by just telling us, let's start a little bit at the end so that people know like exactly who your father was. Okay. Uh, my father was Ervil LeBaron, spelled E-R-V-I-L. And we live in a Googleable age. So anybody can Google his name and read for days about the things that he did, the atrocities he committed against mankind, and the things that he did, which earned him the title, the Mormon Manson. Uh, 
which is after Charles Manson. You can also Google that um, if you want to know more about that. <laughs> if you dare. <laughs> if you dare. And so he had a church. He founded and formed a church based on the tenets of Joseph Smith's doctrine and theology and and then lived that out. And it kind of spiraled downward from there. And he eventually died when I was 12, but that didn't loosen the grip that he had on his followers and on his family. And so a lot more, lots more happened even after he died in prison. And interestingly enough, the people who follow uh, the Warren Jeffs story, also a fundamentalist Mormon cult leader, can read on the news that he is actually directing the steps of his followers from prison, which my father also did. And so living that out and walking that out has been, uh, was difficult. Yeah. And so if people do Google him, they'll see that like he ordered hits on people from prison. Is that right? Yes. Mob style hits and just shattered so many lives with what he believed was the right thing. And how many official wives did he have, or maybe official or unofficial wives? He had 13 wives and fathered more than 50 children. <laughs> See, now to me, that just does not seem logical. Like, why would you want to have that many children? <laughs> well, they believed, because Joseph Smith believed that it was their duty to, uh, quote, replenish the earth. And so that's what they did, and um, they did it really well. <laughs> And your mom had how many children? My mother had 12 children. Only seven of us are from my father. Okay. She had five children before she met my father. And so was she divorced at that time when she met him, or how did that work? I talk about that in the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we can cover that a little bit because it kind of doesn't give away the whole thing. Yes, sure. No, she, she was married at the time that she met my father. Her husband had gone to one of my dad's talks and became convinced that following the original tenets of Joseph Smith's teaching was actually more in keeping with what Joseph Smith taught than what the modern day LDS Mormon church believes and practices. So he came home to my mother and talked to her about it. And she was very much opposed to any kind of thinking of polygamy or anything like that. And so her husband at the time went back to my father and said, if you want me to follow you and to join your church, you're going to have to come here and convince my wife. So my father went and convinced her, convinced her so much so that they eventually got together and you know, all it's all very entangled. <laughs> yes. So you came along, and I'm, I've read the book, so I know so many stories, but you, this was not a very stable upbringing, to put it lightly. So tell us a little bit about kind of the moving around and some of the scary parts of what it was like to live within that system. Well, it didn't start out scary. When I was born, it wasn't during the scary years. However, my father and his brother were the co-founders, I, I guess you can say, of the original church 
of the firstborn, I think is what it was called. And then they eventually had a falling out and they kind of parted ways. And eventually the, the relationship between them became acrimonious and lots of stuff happened that are, that's talked about in lots of other books that have been written. And so I don't have to go into all that. However, eventually my dad ordered a hit on his own brother. And that was when I was about three years old, that hit was carried out. And so from the time I was three for the next 10 years or so, we would live life on the run, uh, trying to stay ahead of the law, which was either the FBI or the Mexican police that determined to find my father. Because that first hit that he ordered multiplied and turned into many, many more over the years. And many atrocities were committed in the name of religion. So we lived the life on the run. We would be awakened in the middle of the night, uh, told to pack our things or put a few things in a bag or whatever we could grab in a hurry, put into a waiting vehicle. And then all of a sudden we were on the road and not knowing where we would end up. And we were never allowed to ask questions. So life was uh, characterized by chaos, insecurity, and just a lot of uprooting. So we never had the opportunity to put down roots and kind of call any place home. Wow. So that must have bred, I mean, you probably didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, it must have bred a lot of like PTSD and insecurity to a, a great degree. As you look back, do you see that? Or did you just kind of survive and you, that's all you knew? We survived and we accepted it. We accepted that that was the life that we had. So there wasn't any there wasn't anything to compare it to. I had never known life outside of the confines of that community and that religious sect that we were a part of. And so it felt normal even though it was anything but normal. When you were growing up and you were like being so to speak chased by the authorities, what kind of view did you have of the authorities during that time? Were you frightened of them? Were you intrigued by them? Did you ever like try to run after him and say, save me from this. But I, I'm guessing no, but. No, that was not how we were raised at all. We were taught to fear them. We were taught to lie to them. We were actually drilled and, and coached on how to lie. And because we were just little kids, you know, they couldn't do a lot. We couldn't manufacture stories. So we were just taught to say, I don't know. Anytime we were asked any kind of question. Do you recall a time when you were questioned where you were frightened during that questioning? Or was that always the case or never the case? We were always frightened if the authorities were involved because it usually, I, you know, when we lived in the United States, the FBI would, would, you know, storm into our home looking for my father and other followers of his that had committed crimes. And that happened in the U.S. And it also happened when we lived in Mexico. And in that case, it would be the Mexican police or the federales, as they were called, looking for my dad. And so generally, if you're a little kid, you're not really involved. But there have been times when I've been questioned about my family, about my father, about my parents. And we're just taught to say, I don't know by anybody. Other people could... we. We didn't know that we needed to be saved. Right. And so since you moved around so much, there was never, or did you ever experience a time when a teacher took an interest in you or someone kind of called you out for some of your abilities or just kind of gave you kind of a, a longing for something else? Well, I did have several teachers 
that um, recognized, you know, they took an interest in me. I was a voracious reader from the time I was little. My sister Celia taught me how to read. So I was reading before I entered kindergarten. Well, I mean, I wasn't reading at a high grade level. Sure, sure. Just, but she that's cool that your sister taught you to read. She would bring home her little first grade papers when she was in first grade and teach me everything that she knew. And we would play school. So I caught on pretty quick. And when I entered kindergarten, <laughs> I'm laughing because when I was in kindergarten, I was... I was very literal, I guess. And one day the teacher had us coloring a page and the instructions were to color the leaves on the tree purple and, you know, the, the bark green or something. And in my head, that made no sense whatsoever because that's not what colored trees are. Mm -hmm. So I colored them the correct way <laughs> <laughs> and then got chided a little bit for not following instructions. But I explained that, you know, this is how trees look. So that's the color you color them. And um, I remember not soon after that, or not too long after that, they put me as the teacher's aide's aide. And they would sit me with the kid that needed the most help to kind of put my energy to use. <laughs> you mean you were energetic back then, too? Yes. <laughs> this is not surprise me. <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's another story. When I was in first grade... When the teacher was standing at the front of the classroom with a pin, like a sewing pin, like a needle, and she stood up at the classroom at the front and said, I want you guys to all be so quiet that when I drop this pin, I'll be able to hear it. So she drops the pin and me just wanting to be helpful, I jump up out of my seat and go try to help her find it. And then like five more kids come and join me trying to find the pin and all of a sudden there's chaos. And so her purpose of wanting quiet is <laughs> totally dismantled by my enthusiastic energy and <laughs> desire to be helpful. <laughs> now uh, you're, uh, we talked before the show that you are a 100% extrovert. And so how did that serve you growing up and moving around so much? Well, there's a, the curiosity that I carried with me everywhere I went no matter what was happening around me, helped me observe things and kind of observe the world around me. And the extrovertedness was very much attempted to squash because my type, my personality type, was just not a good fit for the community that we lived in. Having a voice, having hope, dreams and vo being vocal and outgoing just did not serve the common good of the people. <laughs> and right. so there was definitely the attempt to squash that personality that was just so innate within me. And I felt that growing up, even though I couldn't identify what was happening. Right, exactly. So um, what kind of, as you look at this, I know that uh, you didn't have tons of connection with your father. So through this whole time, who was squashing you? And when did you have time to interact with your father? And what was that like? Um, there, I can only count a handful of times when I was even in the same room as my father. Wow. So, wow, that's crazy. I know. And, you know, we were taught that we were quote, celestial children, because we were born of the prophet, Ervil the Baron, and that he was God's mouthpiece on earth. And so we were taught to revere him and to live in awe of him. And so just being in the same room with him felt like an honor and 
oh my gosh, he's here. And when, when you're a child of somebody and you're not even sure that they know your name, that's an interesting way to interact with someone. You revere them. You are excited about their presence, even though you're not sure they know you. <laughs> yeah, they, they have this kind of godlike aura about, aura about them. Yes, absolutely. So it was, um, it was in Mexico when I actually came into the same room as my, own, my father and knew who he was. So there might have been times when I was younger where he was around, but I wasn't cognitively aware that he was my father or whatever. When I was, so all that began happening when I was three. So he began to move around in the nighttime into and out of the different homes that we occupied. And so I was not usually aware, even if he was present. Right. And was there any like jockeying going on within the siblings of different moms or were this, was there, I mean, we, in this day and age, there's sister wives on TV and all of that. So, and it's all dramatic and everyone's yelling at each other and whatever, but I'm guessing that that's probably not exactly how it was with you, but I, I'm just curious if it, if there resembles anything like that. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the sister wives because one of the girls on that show is my cousin. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> um, if you look at pictures of, and she's my doppelganger. So if you look at pictures of Christine Brown and I side by side at the different ages and stages of growing up, it's, um, it's very remarkable how similar we look. And so the way the, that polygamy is portrayed on the television show, Sister Wives, is very, very different than the way I was raised. They're very open about their lifestyle, whereas we were, it was all very secretive. Everything about it was secretive. And most people living in polygamy continue to maintain that secrecy. And them being very outspoken about it is interesting, is a very interesting dynamic. And the thing that I can appreciate about that show, if there's anything to appreciate about it, <laughs> um, just because my experience was so different, is that from what I've gathered, they allow their children to choose whether to follow in that lifestyle. And so they're allowing their children more freedom than anything I ever experienced growing up. It was an assumption that we were going to be married off and be a polygamous wife. And I think that's why they tried to squash, you know, any kind of life or anything that you had within you and stifle that because in order to live that kind of life, you have to be willing to squash some of your feelings, natural, normal feelings, just because it's very, it's a very difficult life to live. Highly submissive and deferent to authority and all of that. So Correct. having a voice is not exactly the best thing to have. <laughs> and, I, and my voice was a little bit loud. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. So as you grew up and, and you're going from place to place, there were times of pretty extreme poverty. Share a little bit about that. Well, as you know, one man cannot support 13 wives and 50 <laughs> yes. children. It doesn't make sense, does it? It's difficult to support just one wife and the children that come along um, for a lot of people. So it was very commonplace for the wives to go on welfare. 
However, not all the wives were legal. Well, only the first wife is technically a legally married wife. So you had to lie. We, they were, you know, they had to lie to get on welfare about who the father of the children was and, you know, all that. There was lots of fraud happening in order for the welfare to continue. And that was generally how we ate. And when that wasn't enough, my mom would buy bread at the bread store. Generally, when stores stock bread and then it doesn't sell, they sell it the next day at one of the thrift stores. For the Mrs. Baird's thrift store is common here. And when it doesn't sell the second or the third day or the fourth, you know, they keep reducing the price. Eventually, they just cut open the bags and stack it in a garbage bag and they sell it as feed for animals. Just very cheap for a whole garbage bag full of bread. And so when welfare wasn't enough, that's what my mom would have to buy um, in order to feed so many children. Because my mom wasn't just raising her own children. She was also responsible for two of the other wives' children that were not able to care for their own children for different reasons. And so even if she went on welfare, the amount that they would give her would be for her own children, but she was actually caring for about double the amount of kids. That wow. So we dumpster dived for food. We dumpster dived for clothes. It was, it was a very harsh reality, and we didn't see it that way. We didn't view it that way uh, at the time. But looking back, I can tell that it was not normal, obviously. And, and I can see all the ways in which those experiences formed and shaped who I am today. So you, after this call, you'll go dumpster dive a little bit. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not, thank you, God, that's not my life now. <laughs> but it did, you know, you talked about mental health a little bit ago where you brought up PTSD and, you know, having grown up like that. My experiences growing up the way we did very much uh, caused me mental and emotional distress. And um, I've probably spent the better part of the last two decades in counseling and pursuing healing, pursuing freedom, pursuing growth in all the ways in which I missed out as a child. And it wasn't until 2014, so not just not very many years ago, but three years ago, that I actually, I had been in counseling for over a year with a really good therapist that was doing some really great things with me. And I was experiencing a lot of health and mental health and well-being as a result of her care. And after I'd been with her for about a year, when I started writing the book, as a matter of fact, when I decided to write the book in January of 2014, I went to her because I know that with health insurance, you're allowed so many visits per year with a counselor. So I asked her what my limit was and, you know, I didn't want to use up all my visits at the beginning of the year and then still be writing and, you know, needing care. <laughs> so she said, with your diagnosis, uh, you don't have a limit. And that's when I got really scared and said, do I even want to know what the diagnosis is? And she says, you have post-traumatic stress. And I went, oh, my gosh. And for a half a second, I thought, well, that's weird, because isn't that what soldiers get when they go off to war? And you tend to identify post-traumatic stress with war veterans. 
And then I went, oh my gosh, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense considering my upbringing and considering the amount of traumatic experiences that I went through as a child. And so it's been in the last three years understanding where the anxiety comes from and working through that and acknowledging it and being able to ask the Holy Spirit and, and work with the Holy Spirit to identify those things and, and bring healing. And so if you don't know what you need healed, how can you ask, you know? And so it's been, the last three years have been probably a fast forward on my healing journey, just understanding what was actually going on in my head and in my heart. Yes. What was having it defined actually eventually brings freedom. Yes. And clarity where you go, oh, this is why this is happening. <laughs> this is, I never even knew that it was called anxiety that I, you know, when you experience that tight feeling in your gut and <laughs> not everybody feels like this all the time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> not always on hyper alert all the time. Yes. So just identifying those things and, and getting the care and the mental health care has been so pivotal in my journey. That's amazing. And I know that how encouraging it is for other people to hear that because you've come from a pretty scary background and for you to mention the Holy Spirit. So you grew up in a cult, a bad cult with a very bad leader who killed people. So this is not a good guy. Um, this is like Jim Jones type of person, not a good person. And can I tell you a story about Jim Jones? <laughs> yes, you can. That, that was, um, I didn't put it in the book and I'm so upset that I didn't put it in the book because I forgot. Exclusive content, folks. Listen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can't remember which chapter in the book, but I was in Mexico and I was living with my sister by the beach in the beach house. That's what we called it. And I remember looking at a, I think it was Newsweek or U.S. News and World Report magazine, maybe Time. I can't remember which one, but one of those. And on the cover was Jim Jones. And I was 10, so I could read. I flipped open the magazine and started reading this story about Jim Jones. I felt horrible and was horrified for these people living in this cult. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Poor them. I know these poor people living in this cult doing <laughs> what this leader says and it's they're being killed. <laughs> I mean, that's how oblivious we were as children and how and why the cover of my book makes so much sense because we were censored. You know, the cover of my book shows my eyes and mouth sensor bars on them because we were not aware of what was happening as children. <laughs> Right. It's it's so it's such a, a sad testimony to the power of one person who who is corrupted and is corrupting others and who is influential and you know has got some of those narcissistic personality disorder problems as well as psychopath and sociopathic ways that you don't know it when you're in the middle of it. I think lots of listeners have been in relationships with people like that and you don't know it. And then when you leave, you're like, oh my gosh, that person was not a good person, but you don't know it. You're, you're captured by them. Right. And so there's no, there's no way to talk about my experiences and my growing up years and my family without having the conversation about mental health. 
because it's so uh, it's so needed. That conversation is very needed. Right. Because you, you have, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's perpetrating mental health issues. Like you, the person has been harmed in some way or just is mentally ill and then they're inflicting it upon more people. And then they, a couple of years later or many years later are diagnosed with PTSD and have anxiety issues. I mean, it just kind of, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Right. In the worst possible way. It's not a very good gift. You just don't want this <laughs> gift. Don't open it, please. Yeah. And, and we're pretty oblivious. I didn't realize I had many of these same kinds of issues until much later. And then you, you look at it more sub objectively and you're like, oh, okay, I can see it now or I can see it in someone else, probably easier than I see it in myself. But, you know, it is a journey. It's a journey to kind of come alive and to know those things. And I can say just knowing you after the fact, so after the 2014, um, you know, you started to become healthy and started to really grow in new ways and freedom. I've known you, I've known that, that Anna, and I can commend you for just chasing it, chasing health. And that's one of the things I love to tell to the listeners of the Restory Show is that healing is active. It is not passive. We cannot sit on our couch and expect to be healed. We've got to want to be well and we need, sometimes we need professionals to help us even see it. And right. then we've got to doggedly pursue it as well. And of course, Jesus shows up in the midst of that, obviously, but there has to be a longing for it. Right. That, that's been my experience. And I say, I, I feel like I have pursued health, mental health, spiritual health, emotional health, physical health, probably more than anyone I know. It has been a passionate pursuit of mine. And the things that I've experienced, the ways that I've grown, the all the healthy expression that anyone can possibly see in me was hard fought. And I, I commend you for it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch. And it's, it, it's proof to everybody in the audience today that no matter how far you've been, no matter if you've committed the crimes or if others have committed crimes against you, there is always hope. There is always hope. You can always make that choice. You know, when um, that verse in Isaiah that Jesus reads, the passage that he reads, you know, I have, um, I don't even remember how it goes. Binding up the brokenhearted or, yeah, yeah proclaim the liberty to captives. and Proclaiming liberty to the captives. And then the other, the other opposite, he says, if you can look it up, um, liberty to the captives, but also those that are, that would be, to me, what you said about those who have committed crimes and those who have crimes committed against them, that passage is indicative of both of those. And he, he's there to proclaim freedom for both those who have committed crimes that are in prison and those who have been imprisoned emotionally or any way by the crimes committed against them. And so that's, how I, that's my read on that passage, even though I can't quote it. You. bringing it up here. And I'm sure some <laughs> listeners are like, it's Isaiah 61. I'm like, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> here we go. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to yeah. proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, 
to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then it goes on. Yes. Beautiful. That is exactly how I feel is that what he did is not just for those who have had evil committed against them, but also for those who are in a prison for the evils that they've committed against others. I love that. I think that's really powerful. So when you, I don't want to go into so much of your escape per se, because I want people to read your book and I, it's such a great story, but here's the question I have for you in the aftermath of it. How, when you were raised in such a quagmire of weird religious thought and cultic thought, how in the world did you find Jesus and how did you not equate finding Jesus with what that was? Like, how did you, how did you frame that? Well, I talk about, um, when we were kids, um, in, in the middle of the cult, in the middle of, you know, FBI raids in our house, being allowed to go to church on Sunday morning with the bus ministry that would come down our streets and they would just take anyone that wanted to go and, and our household would fill up their bus, basically. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, this is the best. We'll stop at one house and we're done. <laughs> and Yeah, one and done, you know. <laughs> so I remember, you know, as a little child being introduced to the concept or to the idea of Jesus and God in different, in ways that we were not taught growing up. And so Jesus wasn't the focus of our group and the way we, that we were taught. It was Joseph Smith. And so we, we knew the story of him in the garden and, you know, that whole thing that seems pretty wholesome to teach children, you know, in a little religious group. And so, we, but we weren't really taught about Jesus and any, or anything having to do with him. So it was a new concept for me. But um, through a series of events that I kind of spell out in the book, I ended up, after I got out, um, in a little Christian school where that's where I was invited to trust Christ and trust Jesus as my savior and, and became a believer, became a Christian. And so I feel like all of that time God was pursuing my heart and, and those opportunities were just ways of, um, him showing himself more clearly. And it was through the people and through the teachers and the students that were surrounding me, I was actually shown love and care and grace and like tangible hands and feet of Jesus kind of care that made such a difference in my life and, and opened my eyes to how really how different following Jesus is as opposed to the way I was uh, taught growing up. I love that. I mean, that's kind of the gist of Christianity, love God, love others. So you experience the second part of that as people were loving you and they were being kind to you. And I, I can just imagine, you know, I pictured you so many times in some of those devastating circumstances or circumstances of fear and poverty and, and confusion and what it must have been like to receive love. You must have been like a crazy little sponge during that yes. time. No, I absorbed it all and, and needed it. And I still have very tender feelings towards the teachers of that Christian school that were very involved and very caring and very demonstrative 
of his love for me. I'm getting all choked yeah. up. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's such a great reminder because, you know, you think about like every day we have that opportunity to show love to someone, but we're always so busy. But because they made that choice, it changed your life forever. I remember one teacher that I had, and I think I share this story in the Q&A section of the book at the end. Ooh, I'm going to give content away. <laughs> but good. I think it's so relevant to yeah. this conversation. I remember the day that she prayed very early on in my years there. And she said the word father when she prayed. And it made such an impact on me because of the tone in which she said it. You knew that she was actually talking to someone that she had fatherly feelings towards. And she felt like a child. And and it impacted me because the way I had been raised had been always with the very formal dear heavenly father that was that didn't have that same tone of care expressed. And so I can still hear her voice in my head to this day. And I was 13 years old. Do we have to say how old I am now? <laughs> <laughs> and you're not 13 anymore. <laughs> not 13 anymore. <laughs> hey, I'm celebrating five decades in just a few days. I'm going to be 50, so it's okay. That's I know, it's so crazy. For you. <laughs> well, let's just say I'm not far behind you. <laughs> okay, that's good. And it's been a lot, a lot of years since I heard her pray that way. That made such an impact on my life, on my heart. That's it amazing. It left me longing for what she had. Like, how do, how do I navigate that my way to that experience? And, you know, you and I are both fatherless girls. And so mm -hmm. we never outgrow the need of a daddy, but there's something pretty damaging about when your daddy was not great or yeah. a criminal or, you know, some, some bad stuff. And it's, are it's you a, trying to make me cry. <laughs> I just, I'm saying it from my own perspective because I've uncovered enough about my own father that I, I don't even know how to mourn him. I don't, I used to think he was everything to me, just like you did. Any little kid thinks their father walks on water, but then you start teasing out what, they were really like, and it's the weirdest way to mourn because you can't, you can't mourn a great man. And yet you can't say that you didn't love them, even though they were not doing the right kinds of things. It's a really complicated and difficult way to grieve. It was a very complicated grief. And that was part of the grief process that I talk about in the book. When I ended up with my first therapist and my first counselor, and I, I share about the five-year journey I had with that therapist, untangling the knots of my grief about not growing up with a father. Huge. And I think a lot of listeners can relate to that. I mean, whether your father was there or absent or we, you know, everyone's human. So not, there's 0% of the fathers who are perfect out there other than our heavenly father. And so we all have some grief in some ways. So as we wrap this up, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who has that kind of complicated grief? What, what helped you? What helped me was one reaching out and, and receiving offers of help. It wasn't until a friend saw the distress that I was in emotionally offered to make me an appointment with a counselor and then offered to take me or babysit my kids. And, you know, she could see that distress. And 
and what, and she was a real friend and said, you need care. And then me receiving that care. And so asking for help or receiving help, whichever way it works, pursuing it, finding it, and then, and then leaning in, leaning into the hard places and, and allowing your heart to crack open and let out some of that grief that's kind of bottled up and pent up and pushed down. One of the things that I've learned is that uh, a saying that's um, from Bob Hamp says, the opposite of depression isn't happiness. The opposite of depression is expression. If you're holding something in and holding it down and bottling it up inside, there's depression. That's like the actual literal definition of depression. And then when you, when that, when those experiences find expression, either with a trusted friend or a counselor, or even just a lay ministry counselor at a church or any type of safe place where you can share your story, that is the opposite of depression. It's expression. And that goes right along with the restory message of that untold story never heals if it's stuck in there. And also the idea of we can be injured in negative community, but we have to heal in good community and you can't just avoid it. I love Brene Brown, how Mm. she quotes, you know, you have to, you share your story with those who have earned the right to hear your story. So true. And that it's not just fodder for everyone because there's so many tender places that you're opening yourself up to when you share these difficult things. And so you want to have people hearing them that can carry them tenderly and gently and, and walk with you on that journey. Exactly. So important. And that's why even though, you know, both of us are now memoirists, uh, you know, it is weird when someone meets me and they're like, oh, I read Thin Places and I'm kind of freaked out because they know me better than some people know me. (laughs) That's me on the page right there naked. Uh, Well, Thin Places is where I met you. I know. That's how we met. In 2010, we met by book. I read your memoir and then it was years later that I um, met you in live and in person at one of your writing seminars. And I always said that if I ever wrote a book, I would want my book to have that same impact on me that or on my readers that your book had on me. And that's my prayer. um, Your book, uh, I say it wrecked me in the best (laughs) possible Mm. and just cracked open so many things that had been left unsaid. Wow. And you gave expression to and Mm. helped me in so many ways that you're probably not even aware of. It's so good to hear because as you know, when you bleed on the page like that, it is not easy. Um, It's not like therapy. It's hard. And your hope is always that there would be good done in the kingdom because of it. And, And giving people permission to be, to say, I hurt too, I think is so powerful. I say that my experience in writing my story I use the word harrowing <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that's exactly lots of things were plowed up because harrowing is an agricultural mm-hmm. term. Yes. And lots of things were plowed up that had been kind of dormant and um, lots of things plowed up that I wasn't expecting in the process. And it's been a healing journey. Lots of good things have grown in the place of that unplowed ground. <laughs> Seeds have been planted that can grow now because of that experience. I've written 34 books now, and every single book God has used to heal me in some sort of way. 
So I resonate with that. So this has been a big year for you. How <laughs> has God restoried you in the past year? I would say that I am becoming the person that he created and redeemed me to be. That's the definition of freedom that Bob Hamp uses, and he's been instrumental in my spiritual growth and my spiritual journey. And who I am, who he created me to be, I have found out is enough. And um, so he created me in my mother's womb. He knew what I was being born into. Um, He knew the difficulty that my life story would be. And when I came to know him, he began the process. And I would say that process has been a decades-long journey of healing. And, but it's been in the past year or two or three that, that who I am, who he imagined me to be when he created me, who he imagined me is coming to life, is finding expression, and, and knowing that who I am, I'm getting all choked mm. up, <laughs> knowing who I am, that it's enough, has been the eye-opening experience for me. That the way he sees me in my real self is enough has been the thing that has restored my life the most. I love that. And I think it's going to resonate with so many. And I think it's something universally that we all struggle with, no matter what our story is. And he is enough. He is enough to carry us to find our enough. And um, I think that's so powerful. Anna, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I just, I'm so excited for the listeners to hear the story. I just can't wait. So thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure and it's an honor. Thanks for listening to the Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Jesus, we all have stories. Some of them are more crazy than others. Um, I know I have a crazy story, but you are the intersector of those stories. And I just love hearing about how you make a way and how you rescue your children in dynamic ways and you go out of your way. You're the, you're the God who stands on tiptoes and who waits for the prodigal to return. You're the God who loses one sheep and chases after it. You're the God who loves his children so much and yet you don't violate our free will. You allow us to run around and be crazy and I'm just so thankful that you've rescued all of us and thank you for rescuing Anna as well. I pray this week that you would give us, um, help us to just have some insight into the fact that you are a God who is near. And I pray that that nearness would become more and more touching to us. We would be more connected to you in the weeks, in the days, in the months to come. Thank you for being a God of grace and a God of chase. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like more information about today's show, head on over to marydemuth.com, Restory 3-6, that's Restory 3-6, and may you live a brand new story this week.